You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, Season 3, Episode 4. And again, we are diving back into one Rear Admiral Retired, James B. Stockdale, the Stoic Warriors Triad. And before we get too deep into this, as always, we are your hosts, Bill Winter. Yep. There he is. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Make it so. And I am Donovan Riley. We're going to plunge ahead a little bit today and talk about good and evil as Stockdale lays it out here. I just have to find my spot again. I lost my spot. <laughs> oh, we're all professionals here. Mm-hmm. But we're going to dive into this whole matter. So uh, Stockdale has been shot down, and you can go back and listen to the previous episode where he addresses this and discusses how he was shot down and the consequences of being captured and being imprisoned in Hanoi, in the Hanoi Hilton, as it was called, for seven and a half years and the torture he underwent. And we're going to dive into this matter, though, because now he's talking about being in prison, in this torture prison, as he calls it, and thinking on Epictetus, meditating on Epictetus's discourses. And now he wants to dive into the whole matter of good and evil. I think, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, but the last podcast, we spent quite a bit of time talking about um uh agency right uh yeah we started to unpack that about what what we what is within our power to do and not to do or leave undone and then what is outside of our control exactly and yeah him, um stockdale being shot down is kind of how he addresses that right mm-hmm. yeah that like as he said he didn't like his bubble of control that he had enjoyed for most of his life was shattered as he touched down on the ground and he was attacked by those villagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the important point, the important takeaway is being able to distinguish between what is and is not within a person's control. Right. And for Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and the other Stoics, your intent is essentially mm-hmm. what you are in control of anything outside of you is out of your control. So for example, in relation to other people, those people are out of your control. They are autonomous individuals. And as I was reading the other day in, in Marcus's meditations, the most miserable people are those who kind of wander all over the place trying to understand the motivations of others mm-hmm. rather than asking, what is your motivation for wanting to run around and find out the motivations of other people? Yep. And so here now, we, we then from that come to this matter of good and evil, because if what is outside of us is neither good or evil in, in nature, this is the argument, the stoic argument in nature, what is natural, that is the world, uh, what is created, so to speak, it is neither good or evil. It is simply governed by certain laws, the laws of nature. And so we call it natural law or the law of nature. And the purpose for the Stoics of life then is to bring your life into conformity to nature in order to be a morally good man or woman. And that this is the ultimate goal of life. This is the purpose of life, to be a good person. Why? So that we can help our neighbor. And I was just studying this in uh, Mosimo Pagliucci's book, How to Be a Stoic, this morning. It's a great book, very readable. I posted it on the Warrior Priest Instagram profile. I don't know nice. if I posted it on Facebook. But something that he draws out, Pagliucci draws out, is that, to think of it this way, that first, I am in relation to myself. So if these are a series of circles, for example, if I threw a rock into a pond and then the splash occurs and then these circles move out from the initial impact point, the first circle is myself. This is the, this is the first person I am, am in relation to is myself. And then the second is my family, for example, or my relatives, my immediate family. And then I am in relation to my tribe, my neighborhood. And then I am in relation to my country, my nation, and then the world. In fact, Stoics invented the word cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. And what it means is, of course, a cosmos, universal, and polis, city. And so we are citizens of the universe, not just the (laughs) citizens of Athens or the citizens of Sparta. We are citizens of the universe. So if we can think of it in those terms, then the first person that I have to basically think on and understand is myself. Mm -hmm. Because how can I act for the good of others 
if I don't first understand my own intent and motives and understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. And because if I act, but I'm pursuing selfish motives, then the things that I desire will lead me toward moral evil. And this is how the Stoics see the world. It's either good or it's evil. Mm -hmm. And so in relation to myself, I first have to figure that out for myself. Then in relation to my relatives, my family, I then ask the next question is how am I going to help my family and how are they helping me or not? And then my neighborhood and then my nation and then my, and then the world. But we then dive into Stockdale today and he quoted Solzhenitsyn previously that good and evil aren't divided by an artificial boundary between two you know, countries. It doesn't exist between ideologies. It's not red team versus blue team, but the line that separates good from evil runs through every person's heart. And so that's where we're at now. He's in jail and most of his choices have been taken away from him. And yet he has to live in relation to other prisoners that he's technically legally not allowed to talk to or communicate with, mm -hmm. even though they figure out this very complicated system of language in order to communicate with each other. But he's also got to learn to live with his guards. And these are people that hate him and vilify him and torture him. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. so let's dive into it. Yeah. Stockdale says, I think more needs to be said about good and evil. After all, the Stoic is indifferent to everything but good and evil. So there you go. This is the whole point. Why think and why meditate on good and evil? Why want to help your neighbor? Why even worry about these things like virtue and vice? Because everything is either good or evil or indifferent. And if it's indifferent, then we don't have to worry about it. Save your adjectives for the things that count. So he continues, in Stoic thought, our good and our evil come from the same locus. Quote, vice and virtue reside in the will alone, unquote. And then another quote, the essence of good and evil lies in an attitude of the will. And by will, he means the impulse or a value judgment. Yeah. Solzhenitsyn locates it in the heart. And Epictetus would buy that or will or moral purpose or character or soul. He's not a nitpicker about things like that. Again, as an aside, and Bill can, I think, back me up on this. Epictetus is really funny. Oh, he is riotous. <laughs> yes, he really is. If you've never read his discourses, I highly recommend them. One, they're very readable. Two, mm -hmm. they're very practical. And three, he's really sarcastic. Yeah, he is. In a really funny way. And yeah. once you're dialed in, the whole thing is just, um, it's very amusing and enjoyable to read his asides. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so Stockdale continues then, what he bears down on, what Epictetus bears down on, is that your good and your evil are the essence of you. You are moral purpose. You are rational will. You are not hair. You are not skin. You are moral purpose. Get that beautiful and you will be beautiful. Mm -hmm. That was revealed to Solzhenitsyn when he felt within himself the first stirrings of good. And this is from the Gulag Archipelago primarily, where Solzhenitsyn admits before he was arrested and sent to the Gulag, he wasn't a good person. He was selfish, he was self-centered and self-interested, didn't really care about other people, wasn't charitable, wasn't altruistic, wasn't forgiving, wasn't really compassionate. And then he was sent to the gulag and he rethought his whole life. And that was one of the revelations. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. a good man. And that, interestingly enough, that more than his imprisonment and his exile is what crushed him. Yeah. So Stockdale says, in that chapter, the old Russian elaborated other truths about good and evil. Not only does the line separating them not pass between political or cultural or ethnic groupings, but right through every human heart, through all human hearts. He adds that for any individual over the years, this separation line within the heart shifts, oscillates somewhat. That even in hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead to good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an ununprooted small corner of evil. There is some good and some evil in all of us. And that is, is Stoic doctrine. In that same chapter, Solzhenitsyn comments, 
if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it was necessary or it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Mm-hmm. And there's the ouch. <laughs> yep. Nope. This is the thing is that when you go to work on these types of questions, they require a scalpel, not a club. And yet <laughs> when you begin, you tend to just beat it with a meat tenderizer because you haven't developed the habits of thinking and reasoning, for example, or you don't have the lexicon of images and analogies and words to express this event, this phenomenon that happens within you. Mm-hmm. Because as he notes, hearts overwhelmed by evil still have a little bit of good somewhere in some dark corner. Likewise, those who are considered the best amongst us, yeah, wrong person, wrong place, wrong time, that little unru- unuprooted evil that's lying there, kind of dormant, it wakes up. <laughs> And it comes out. You know, the example that I used with my son this morning when we were driving home from class is you have to ask yourself the question. My oldest is 16. I said, you have to ask yourself the question of whether you're capable of great violence or not. And that's kind of one of the side effects or side questions that come up with Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu is, are you capable of violence? And some people just aren't, you know, it's not for them. They don't, <laughs> they don't have it in them. Others do. The ones who stick around and, and, and progress and get their belts and get better and so forth, they have that violence in them and they figure out how to control that and how to manage that. But every person, I think, has to ask themselves this very sober question, am I capable of great violence? Or at the very least, what, what is it that can drive me to do great violence to another person? Is it fear? Is it shame? Is it guilt? Is it anger? What is it? And as I explained to my son, I am definitely a person who is violent by nature and brutal. But this is what, you know, martial arts helps me control that and curb it and put it in a cage and only let it out in the proper place, for example, and not just go around being angry at people and threatening them all the time. However, if you touch my children or threaten them in any way, I'm going to unleash violence on you that you can't even imagine. It's going to be Mm. It's going to be horrible and it's going to be over fast for one of us um, because I love my children more than my life and I'm willing to sacrifice my life for the sake of my children. And when my first was born, that became almost terrifyingly clear to me actually that number one, I didn't realize I was capable of loving another person that much. And number two, it, it occurred to me almost at the same time of what I would do to protect him from the world. Of course, at the time, what I wasn't aware of is that the person he needs to be protected from first and foremost is his father. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I'm still, you know, in, in, in Christian theology, we call that sin, original sin, which is just a $10 church word for selfish. Yep. And as much as I love him, I'm still selfish. Good and evil still run through my heart. And if I don't get my way, <laughs> then we have conflict. And when you have a pubescent child in your house, surrounded by another pubescent child and other prepubescent children, and then you have a father and mother and you're all kind of going different ways. Sometimes you get it. I, I know you don't know this bill because you're a seminarian. And so therefore you're holy and pious and you're <laughs> always walking through the house chanting with folded hands. But yes, there is never conflict in the winter household. I'm sure. Nope. Nope. Never. We right. pray it out. We, we pray. We pray the conflict away. calendar dedicated to my family. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think, you know, as my son and I were talking about, Uh, different topics on the way home, we, you know, in a roundabout way, this is really what we're talking about is people just generally don't want to believe that they are capable of evil, moral evil. And because of that, because they say things like, well, I would never do that, or that could never happen to me. I tell him from my own experience, that's your weak spot. That's your vulnerable spot because you're not paying attention to it. And that's where it slips in at. That's where you let somebody into your life, for example, who shouldn't be in your life, but because you're blind to what they're bringing in with them, because you say, well, that would never happen to me. Like I'm an alcoholic. And yep. so I say, well, I could never get fall off the wagon. I could never lose my sobriety. I'm a hundred percent setting myself up to lose my sobriety mm-hmm. because I'm not paying attention and keeping my fence constantly in a state of repair so that the temptation to relapse doesn't enter in. 
and I've seen that over and over again with other alcoholics and drug addicts where they say, well, I'm good now, or I went through rehab and everything's okay. And then they have a drink for whatever occasion or, you know, an old friend comes into town from college or they go out with their wife for an anniversary. They're just going to have a drink. Mm. And then they call me and say, I can't find my car. What happened? I had a drink and then the night just kind of became blur. Mm-hmm. Well, you were just telling me the other day about how great, you know, things were and how you're killing the game and how so, you know, proud you are of how sober you are. You created a blind spot. And yep. There was a hole in your fence line and well, temptation got through. So to continue, Stockdale says, I just want you to know that I connect with that. I connect with what Solzhenitsyn says. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. Mm-hmm. I connect with that, he says. In a crucible like a torture prison, you reflect. You silently study what makes those about you tick. Once I had taken the measure of my torture guard, watched his eyes as he worked, watched him move, felt him move as he stood on my slumped over back and cinched up the ropes, pulling my shoulders together. I came to know that there was good in him. That was ironic because when he first came in with the new commissar, when torture was instigated after I got there, I had nicknamed him Pig Eye because of the total vacancy of the stare of the one eye he presented as he peeked through cell door peepholes. He was my age, balding, wiry, quick, lithe, 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 thank you, strong, like an athletic trainer. He was totally emotionless. He was totally emotionless, and thus his emotionless eyes. He had almost no English language capability, just motions and grunts. Under orders, he put me through the ropes 15 times over the years and rebroke my bad leg once, I feel sure, inadvertently. It was a court-martial scene, and he was having to give me the ropes before a board of North Vietnamese officers. The officers sat at a long table before Pig Eye and me, and behind us was a semicircle of soldiers bearing rifles with fixed bayonets at a kind of dangle position, the bayonet pointing at the cement floor ahead of them. This was in the knobby torture room of New Guy Village at Howlow Prison in August 1967. So-called because the walls had been crudely speckled with blobs of cement the size of an ice cream scoop in a soundproofing attempt. I could tell Pig Eye was nervous because of these officers whom I had never seen before, and I don't think he had. And he pressed me flat over my bad leg instead of the good one he had always put the tension on before. The healing knee cartilage gave way with a loud bop. And the officers looked at each other and then got up and left. I couldn't get off that floor and onto my feet for nearly two months. In all those years, we probably had no more than 24 hours one-on-one together. But neither of us ever broke the code of an unvaryingly strict line-of-duty relationship. He never tricked me, always played it straight, and I begged no mercy. I admired that in him, and I could tell he did in me. And when people say, he was a torturer, didn't, didn't you hate him? I say, like Solzhenitsyn, to the astonishment of those about me, no. He was a good soldier. Never overstepped his line of duty. Mm-hmm. Again, there's another one of those moments. Yeah, it's always sobering to read through this. It's, it's an, again, it's an interesting thing to look at it from that perspective too and not to immediately attach adjectives to someone and say, well, he's evil because mm-hmm. I'm good. I have to be good because I'm the one being tortured. I'm the one being in prison. I'm the one who has no control over what happens. Mm-hmm. But to, to detach and to observe and to say, no, he was a good soldier. He was doing his duty. And yet in the line of duty, he never overstepped his duty. He, what do you want to say? He did the, the healthy leg versus the unhealthy leg, but he still did his duty. He just did it to the leg that wasn't, you know, broken. And again, I was talking, we were talking about this on the way home that, and you can speak to this better than I can, but uh, Jocko Willink talks about this. Andy Stumpf has talked about this. Mike Ritland has talked about this. People that have served in active duty is 
the thing that separates a U.S. soldier or military personnel from Al-Qaeda or ISIS, for example, is morality in the sense of they have no value for life, for human. Mm-hmm. The guy that's fighting to their left and their right, when the bullets start to fly, they may have been fighting together for decades, but they won't hesitate to grab the person to their left or right and put them in front of them as a bullet shield. Mm-hmm. They don't hesitate to grab women and children and use them as, as shields. Yeah. As soon as you as an American soldier or military personnel cross that line, you've given up the moral high ground and now you've become like them. And Marcus Aurelius in his meditation says the best revenge is to not become like your enemy. Mm -hmm. And yet what is the temptation but to descend into that darkness and say, like uh, uh, Hackworth does, we're going to out-G the Gs. We're going to out-gorilla the gorillas. We're going to learn the gorillas' tactics, and we're going to be better at their tactics at than they are. And we're not going to wait for them. We're going to go out and attack them. And we're going to do to them what they do to us. We're going to scare them so bad that they're not going to want to attack us anymore. Mm-hmm. But I was just listening to a podcast recently. Uh, Jocko, actually, was interviewing a retired Army Ranger, and he was talking about how they were so good at their job in Afghanistan that the terrorists actually had a bounty out for them and that uh, if they could kill a special forces officer and behead them, specifically behead them, they would receive an award and essentially like a reward and an award, like like a dog tag type of medal that they wore around as a badge of honor that they had killed and beheaded a special forces officer. In, hmm. in combat. And so he said, you know, this, this retired ranger, uh, platoon commander, yeah, said, you go out every day on patrol with that in your head, that everybody out here in these hills wants to chop your head off. Mm-hmm. That's your daily existence. And then you're forced to go on leave for two weeks. And thanks to mass transit, you one day, this guy's trying to blow you up and cut your head off. And the next day, you're in Rhode Island eating pancakes. <laughs> and you're supposed nope. to just transition from one thing to the other thing for two weeks and then just go back and you step foot off the, the Sikorsky and you're back in it again. Mm-hmm. Like that's a hard reality and people don't appreciate that. Over here, you're trying to hold the line, especially as a commander an OIC. And yet at the same time, you have the same desire going back to the Stoics. You have the same desire as your, as your soldiers, which is, yeah, let's let's kill them. Let's torture them. Let's treat them the way that they would treat us and put the fear of God in them. But then he as as an officer in charge is saying, "No, you can't you can't do that because once you give up the moral high ground, as he said, something inside you will die mm-hmm. and you can never get that back." Because once you cross that line into immorality, doing what you know is wrong, morally wrong, something inside of you will break and you can never repair that again. Mm-hmm. And I have to, and like he said, my job as the commander here is to get them through their tour of duty safely and get them back home again. Yeah. So what kind of a commander am I going to be if I allow them to go there and I go there with them and then I send them home? Because again, they're going to go home and they're going to be told, okay, now readjust to civilian life and just go back to your life. Well, what you don't know is that over here we crossed a line and something inside of them snapped and broke and they can't get that back anymore. They're dead. My dad came back from Vietnam. And as so many veterans have experienced, well, he came back dead. He was just the walking dead. And so he came yeah. back, but he wasn't the man that he was when he left. And in some, in some ways then, as, as even he himself has lamented when he's really, really drunk, the, his buddies who died and were buried and body bagged over there were more fortunate than he was because they came home and got buried and he had to live with all that. Mm. For him, that's what drove him to alcohol and drug addiction. That's what drove him to basically move as far away from people as he could geographically and physically because he just could not integrate to this day, actually all these decades later. And, you know, back to Stockdale, I mean, that's kind of the thing he's saying is like, I'm not saying they're bad and I'm good or we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We wear the white hat, they wear the black hat, but rather good and evil runs through each of our hearts. And like I said, depending on the person, the place and the time you could let free that moral evil that's in your own heart, or you could suppress it, cage it, keep it caged and behave in a way that's morally good. Yeah. Well, one of the worst 
realizations uh, being in a combat zone is that you are every bit as capable of the worst of the things Haji is doing. Sure. Um, that's all I have to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that you're just being deeply thoughtful. So back to Stockdale then, by that time, I had learned that fear and guilt are the real pincers that break men's wills. I would chant under my breath as I was marched to interrogation, knowing that I must refuse to comply and take the ropes. Quote, your eyes must show no fear. They must show no guilt, unquote. The North Vietnamese had learned never to take a prisoner downtown to the payoff for what our whole treatment regime was about. Public propaganda exploitation. Unless he was truly intimidated, unless they were sure he felt fear, their threats had no meaning unless you felt fear. They had suffered the political damage of several, including myself, who had acted up, spoken up, and blurted out the truth to the hand-picked audience of foreigners at the press conference. Book four of Epictetus's Discourses says, when a man who has set his will neither on dying nor upon living at any cost comes into the presence of the tyrant, what is there to prevent him from being without fear? And the answer is nothing. Fear is an emotion and controlling your emotions can be empowering. I think I've mentioned all the things that the Stoics thought were truly in our power within the realm of our moral purpose, under the control of our free will, save one category. It requires a little different thinking, so I've saved it for last. I've introduced it already in part. The Stoics believed that all human emotions are acts of will. You are happy because you want to be happy. You are drained or sad when you want to be sad. And fear is not something that danger forces on you. When you find yourself afraid, it is time to realize that you decided, wanted, willed, that you fear. As I said above, without your having fear, nobody can mean meaningfully threaten you. In discourses, there is a dialogue, something like this. And it was like old home week to me. Quote, when questioned, I had to give him our escape plans. He threatened me with death. I was compelled. I had no choice. That's not right. You had a choice and you made it. It may have been justified. I won't judge that for now. But be honest with yourself. Don't say you had to do anything just because you are threatened with death. You simply decided it was better to comply. It was your will that compelled you refuse to want to fear and you start acquiring a constancy of character that makes it impossible for another to do you wrong. Threats have no effect unless you fear. Epictetus says, quote, will you then realize that this epitome of all the ills that befall man of his ignoble spirit of his cowardice is not death, but rather is fear of death. As I said, learning to take charge of your emotions is empowering. When you get there, in Caridian 30 applies, quote, no one can harm you without your permission. And by harm, Epictetus means, as Stoics always mean, harming your inner self, your self-respect, your obligation to be faithful. He can break your arm or your leg, but not to worry, they will heal. Poof. <laughs> yep that's intense but it's true yep. it's 100% true we talked about this in the BJJ debrief about the tournament and you talked about it in, in going back to jujitsu and we deal with this as parents you deal with this as a spouse mm -hmm. in your vocation in your jobs you deal with this fear always fear fear of doing something new fear of quitting and looking for a new job, fear of asking for a raise, fear of saying, you know what, I don't agree with that, fear of acknowledging maybe you're a coward or you're afraid or like I said, you know, fear of acknowledging that you're not capable of violence and you're just mm -hmm. yourself about what you're doing. And then guilt, oof, you know, we talked about this when we were reading Pressfield when we were doing Cyrus the Great. Yeah. You know, do you live in a guilt-based system or a shame-based system? 
Guilt is usually individual. What did you do wrong? And therefore, what is the penalty? What did you do right? And therefore, what is the reward? In a shame-based culture, it's who did you let down? It's relational. Mm -hmm. For the Stoics, though, as he notes, fear and guilt are emotions. They're feelings. And you have a choice whether or not to fear fear and guilt. I would actually argue then to build off of that, the most difficult emotion for me to get control of is not my anger, actually, but fear. Mm -hmm. Fear is hard because fear, to me anyways, is essentially I can't control the future. And like we were talking before we went on air, I like listening to true crime podcasts. And mm -hmm. especially the ones that really delve into not only the facts of the case, but really the psychology and the motive and the intent of the killer. Like what led this person to do this, especially in yeah. cases of domestic violence, would that lead to murder or a relationship between two people that ends in murder? Like you were in a relationship with this person. What, what led to this point where you just decided, you know what, I'm going to take you out of this world. I'm going to take your life. And in a lot of cases that I've been listening to regard that start with domestic violence and abuse, it's fear. Like one person fears losing the other person. And so ultimately they're driven to great violence and even taking another person's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, they certainly can be. Right. And so I think fear, probably for most people, fear is the one emotion that we would like to claim we have no control over. Mm -hmm. Because I think it motivates so much of our decision, our decisions. And if we really faced up to how much of the emotion called fear determines your decisions during the day just in a day let's just just an hour or two mm -hmm. it it might be kind of overwhelming <laughs> but yet it's essentially like an exercise if you don't exercise you don't build muscles if you don't read and challenge yourself you don't develop intellectual muscles well if you don't develop the habit of controlling emotions then you're kind of flabby and weak such as fear yeah exactly and so how can you hope to control or at least curb the emotion called fear if you yourself are not in the driver's seat? You're not empowered as he, the language he uses. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and whether or not fear is 100% completely controllable in all cases is somewhat beside the point. Right. If you struggle with fear... Okay, let's say, just for argument's sake, you don't have control over that emotion. Mm -hmm. Do, however, have control over how you react based on that emotion. Right. You have control over whether or not you face that emotion. Right. Um, so, if, um, a ridiculous example, I guess, if you fear, I don't know, horseback riding, mm -hmm you need to be climbing into the saddle and you can control that. Um, and the same goes with martial arts. It, right. it goes with any number of things in our lives. There are ways to confront that fear in order to eventually gain control over it. Mm -hmm. But these, the common way of dealing with fear or really any problem um, uh, at the moment is to utterly flee from it. Right. So I need my safe space. I need all these um, uh, concessions, etc. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't actually help the person. Right. It creates uh, a victim culture. Very much so. Because you want other people to make you safe. Mm -hmm. through the, yep. again, through violence, actually, through the enforcement of laws and rules and regulations and codes of conduct that say, you're triggering me and I feel unsafe now. So you need to stop that. And I say, no. So then you have to go find somebody to enforce it for you. Mm -hmm. And again, you're actually propagating weakness. You're propagating a victim mentality because you refuse to take responsibility and ownership for your own thoughts your own emotions, your own actions. Exactly. Exactly. You are making the choice to act out in, uh, because of your being offended or right. fearful or whatever the case is. Well, you're 
actually hurting yourself. Right. And you're probably hurting those around you too, because you are either reinforcing their behavior or you're teaching them that, hey, there's certain upsides to this, which is you don't have to take responsibility for your life. Precisely. And this is, we've talked about this in the past, but this is something that we're always working with the kids on and teaching them is no one can make you angry. You Mm -hmm. choose to become angry because of what they're saying or doing. And once you choose to become angry because of what they say or do to you, you give them power over you because now they know if I say this to him or I do this to him, it's going to set him off. And so whenever they want to watch you dance like a monkey, they're going to do that thing. Mm -hmm. And until you stop reacting that way, until you stop getting angry or stop throwing that tantrum, they're going to keep doing it because they enjoy it. That's what kids do when they taste power. They exploit it. Yep. Yeah. Just it it just becomes so much more exaggerated as you get older and become an adult. Well, it really does. But this then would uh, be a a massive difference between what we've been talking about and thus far throughout the entire podcast and um, what a lot of people want to uh, live in and accept. That is to say, this is a question of anthropological differences. Sure. Stoicism, for example, or Natobe or Cyrus the Great recognize not just a, not only a capacity for great evil in each and every human being, mm-hmm. but the fact that it is actually present there, even if in a small amount. Right. On the flip side, what people uh, are tempted to think is what uh, Solzhenitsyn, uh, I'm butchering that name, the Russian guy who went to the Gulag. Okay. I butchered life, so. <laughs> <laughs> Which is <laughs> Americans. It's, it's um, Alexander. Oh. There you go. Just call him Alex. Yeah, Alex. <laughs> I like it. Um, Oh, where was it? But the I, the idea, I'm going to have to just paraphrase here, is that uh, if only we could just separate the bad people from the rest of us, exactly. then everything will be okay. Well, it has been tried. Let's not, let's not oh, forget. Yes. Many, many, many men have tried. Uh-huh. And you, again, the final solution to that is literally the final solution. Yeah. Well, and it's not just Hitler. Right. Stalin. Wow. Pol Pot. Pot, exactly. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, Operation Gladius in yes. Italy. Um, yeah. it, we, we try this over and over and over again, and it never works because you, you're not actually separating the good from the bad. In fact, I can say this when we're recording this, it's September 14th, 2019. If you want to see how this has played out in our society thus far, go watch Dave Chappelle, Sticks and Stones on Netflix, or go watch Bill Burr, Paper Tiger on Netflix. Because they attack this whole conversation head on in a way that as they both joke, this is pretty much the last special we'll ever do because our careers are over Mm -hmm. topics we're talking about and how we choose to address them. Yeah. And all there are, and what they are attacking in a comedic way. And I think actually brilliantly, I love both of them as comedians. I think Chappelle's probably the greatest comedian of this generation. Yeah. What they're attacking is this victim culture and saying, no, you are responsible for yourself and you need to stop trying to basically destroy people that disagree with you Mm -hmm. and recognize that the source of your problems is you actually. We talked about this in the last episode that like Epictetus points out, most of our tragedies as human beings are because we desire those things that are outside of us and outside of our control. And Mm -hmm. talking to my wife about this the other day, what's really tragic is that we pursue something that we desire something that makes us feel good, whether it's a bag of Doritos or, you know, Pop-Tarts or it's sitting on the, the couch all day playing video games and not, you know, showing up for work or just pursuing a relationship with someone who doesn't want to have a relationship with you. Mm-hmm. You actually end up desiring the ability to desire those things that you can't have. Mm-hmm. So it's not even the boy or the girl. It's not even the food. It's not the the show. It's not the idea anymore that you actually desire. You just want that feeling of desiring something. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tell people this, like as an alcoholic, going back to this, I don't, I just need an excuse to drink. 
if it's Arbor Day, good enough. Let's drink. It's Arbor Day, right? Let's celebrate the trees. Oh, it's the vernal equinox. Let's have a keg party. Like as an alcoholic, I don't really need a lot of motivation to drink. Mm. I just need a little push, a little nudge, <laughs> but it doesn't take a lot. So the idea that, well, I only drink when I'm happy. Well, yeah, but how long until you start drinking when you're sad? Because yep. if you're not happy and you're not celebrating, then you're depressed and then you pour anesthesia basically into your body <laughs> and you actually get depressed as a consequence and then you're sad. So then you drink because you're sad and then you get stuck in this cycle. The higher, the highs are the highest they've ever been and the lows are lower than they've ever been. And mm -hmm. I think this is what ends up happening then is when you let your emotions run the show for you, so to speak, that you let the, your emotions make the value judgments for you. Like we talked about, if you bill, make this conversation good to me and I feel good about this conversation, you're a good man. But mm -hmm. if we have this conversation and you don't make me feel good about it, well, then you're a bad man. Yep. yep. And if you go through life letting your feelings determine what is morally good or evil, you end up falling in love, basically. You become infatuated with and obsessed with just that feeling of desiring something. Mm -hmm. It's very powerful. This is why pornography is so powerful. And why so many people are addicted to online pornography. Not, I mean, how many times can you watch pornography before it's just the same story over and over and over again? But people keep going back to it because it's not the, the images that they're watching that's the thing. It's that, it's that desire itself. It's desiring to be involved in this. And this goes back to fear and guilt even. You're doing something naughty and or not. Or you're trying to explain it to yourself that this isn't, you know, morally wrong or sexually immoral. That's just a social construct, however you, you frame the argument. But nonetheless, it's still desiring just that feeling of desiring something. And I think that's what a lot of people would actually frame as an art. Like, this is what it feels like to be alive. But really what they're talking about is, I just want to feel something. Mm -hmm. I want to feel that desire. I want to feel the pleasure that comes with that particular desire, which for the Stoics is moral evil. That's what moral evil is. It's not being rational and reasonable. It's not recognizing that this isn't helping your neighbor. Ryan Holiday has a wonderful essay actually about why pornography is just basically dumb <laughs> on several levels. It's actually a really good essay. It's really well argued. I think he posted it on Instagram a couple mm. months ago. It's really good. Nice. But um, the point is, is that like for the Stoics, that's the question of like, how does this help your neighbor? And yeah. also then, how does giving into emotion, giving into desire, help you and help your neighbor? Because you give into this desire, how does that help your spouse? How does that help you love your spouse more when you're diverting your attention to these people that aren't even related to you? And how does that then help your neighbor? And how does that help your country? And how does that better the world in general when you mm -hmm. give your own desires and pursue the food or the pornography or the idea that makes you feel good? but it actually isn't good for you and therefore it isn't good for anybody else. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that's about 41 minutes into this and there's a whole nother thought that comes at the end of what we just read. So right. we can wrap it up with that. The yeah. epitome of all the ills that befall man, of his ignoble spirit, of his cowardice, isn't death. It's instead the fear of death. Because again, when you're dead, you're dead. That's the thing. You don't feel anything when you're dead. So death itself, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's a natural part of life. Everything that lives dies. We know this. It's the fear of death. Even for those who believe in God or believe in an afterlife, believe in a heaven and a hell or a resurrection or paradise or whatever, there's still that fear of, well, maybe I'm completely deluded and I'm, I'm just lying to myself. Mm -hmm. Because why? Well, because you have to trust, that's what faith is, trust, that there is something more than just what my five senses can comprehend. Mm -hmm. But I can't prove it until I die. <laughs> There's the catch. So the fear of dying is like the fear of anything else. It's the anticipation of something that we don't have control over, but it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. The fear of the hurricane the fear of the divorce, the fear of the layoff, the fear of, the, of blowing out your knee when you're training, for example. <laughs> That's yep. a whole conversation for another podcast that Bill messed his knee up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good lesson learned. New guy-itis. But um, 
But that's a very real fear. And, and as I explain to new students when I'm teaching, every single, I, would, I train five days a week and I don't, I don't take it easy when I train, so to speak. Therefore, and I've been, this has been told to me, because I'm too intelligent, I think too much about these things. Whereas people, and again, I'm not bragging, I'm just, this is what has been said to me and I've heard this in several places since then. When you're intelligent, you think about things like, hey, I could get shot. <laughs> I could die out here. Someone that's not hyper-intelligent, that doesn't kind of live in their own thoughts, not really concerned about whether they're going to get shot or not or whether this is dangerous. Or You know, I don't like getting punched in the face. <laughs> People that are more intelligent tend to think more about the consequences of, of what's happening to them. And so what ends up happening, though, is that every time that I go to the gym, I know statistically I'm more likely to get injured than someone who trains twice a week because I'm there five times a week. Therefore, I'm just more likely just because I'm exposing myself to that more often, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, going back to what we were talking about earlier too, you have to overcome that fear of anticipation because it's not real in the sense of, I have not been catastrophically injured up to this point. And even saying that, basically, I can feel the motivation to be hyper superstitious, knock on wood, you know, don't say that out loud because then it'll happen that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But the fear also comes in with, I've got to overcome that flinch reflex. I can't stop myself from flinching. When someone punches you in the face, you will flinch whether you want to or not. It's a natural nervous reaction to someone throwing their fist at you. But what you can't do sparring and training and constantly going back at it is eliminating the gap between the flinch and the response to that flinch. Mm-hmm. Most people, when they're punched in the face, they flinch, they cover up, and they kind of go fetal. They freeze. Training is basically trying to eliminate that gap so that you don't freeze, you react. Even kind of react without thinking. You throw yeah. a punch, you throw a kick, a knee or an elbow or whatever it might be. But all of those fears are there every... Like people ask, like, the longer you train, are you less fearful? No. I've just learned how to control it better. Well, have you ever seen... Um, there's... Uh, so a little bit of video footage of it, but then uh, Mike Tyson talks about it on his uh, podcast hmm. where um, dude was just a mess before fights. Mm -hmm. Terrified. You know, sometimes, yeah. uh, in his words, right. sometimes even crying, weeping at the thought of, you know, having to step into a ring. And he had been fighting for years at this right. point this is natural. Well, what is the difference then say between uh, Mike Tyson, you know, mm -hmm. one of the greatest boxers who ever lived and the rest of us, well, he still stepped in that ring, right? He still went to the gym after the fight right. and before the fight. And he, the things that were within his control, right? He, did the things that were outside of his control you know right. i i can't imagine how fearful it would be to step into the ring with you know another world-class heavyweight right right uh, that would probably be a very fearful thing but recognizing that there are things in all of our lives that we cannot control mm -hmm. and asking yourself instead the question well what can you right. control Right. So, um, actually, th this might be a very good, if if brief, uh, example. I uh, I hurt my knee on Tuesday. It's just a sprain, you know, nothing catastrophic, thankfully. But the question now for the next couple weeks is not, "Well, shoot, I can't do anything. I need to just sit back and you know, mow down mm -hmm. on pizza and and have a bunch of McFlurries." No, the question is, "Well, what can I do?" Right. Let's do that to act otherwise. And, and this applies to all aspects of our lives. Right. To act otherwise is not honorable. Right. And in some cases, it's evil. Right. Well, and to wrap it up with this then, to repeat from the Enchiridion, no one can harm you without yeah. your permission. And by harm, what Epictetus means is this your inner self, your self-respect, your obligation to yourself to be faithful to the pursuit of whatever it is you're pursuing. Because yeah, 
You can break your arm, you can break your leg, but you know what? They'll heal. Mm-hmm. It's only pain. It's only a tear. It's only a break. It'll heal. But if you allow yourself to be harmed by that, if you give permission to let that harm you, then you are damaging your self-respect. You're damaging that faithfulness to the pursuit of that goal. You're damaging your inner self. And once you damage your inner self, it becomes that much easier to give permission to fear to rule over you and make decisions for you. Mm -hmm. And so, again, as we conclude uh, this podcast, think on that. No one can harm you without your permission. And this is coming from a man who spent seven and a half years in a prison, torture prison, as he says, in North Vietnam, having his shoulders pulled behind him until they touched and having his legs broken and sitting in irons, having his ankles chained in irons and being tortured for seven and a half years. He's saying no one can harm you without your permission. So he's speaking from firsthand experience. He's got street cred with this one. Mm -hmm. So just think on that until the next episode. And uh, we'll come back next week with a brand new episode from uh, James Stockdale and more of his adventures in the prison camp. And talk about (laughs) something else. (laughs) Uplifting. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But as always, we truly do appreciate you giving us your time and attention. We know they're valuable to you and we hope we haven't wasted it. And we hope that you've benefited from this podcast. And if there's someone you would like us to read in the future, we'd love to hear back from you. If you want to give us a rating on uh, Apple Podcasts, we truly appreciate it, especially if it's a five-star rating, if you think we deserve it. Otherwise, come and track us down on social media and uh, please share the podcast with friends and family if, again, you think we deserve it and you like it. And we'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Bill? Thank you as always. Peace.